This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall not suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's make sure that we are in fellowship. Ready to study God's word. A few moments of silent prayer for the use of 1 John 1, 9, if necessary. For those of you who didn't make it to prayer meeting, Dan successfully made it through his, uh, his surgery this afternoon. His sister called me around 5 o'clock. He, he's staying in recovery overnight. He's not very conscious and won't be till tomorrow. But uh, they got everything, and they um, uh, think that it, it looks good. It, it looked better than they anticipated, and it looks as if uh, it doesn't look as if it spread. It didn't look as if the, the uh, anything had gone into the um, into the intestinal wall or anything. So, a good prognosis at this point. But they won't know for sure for another week. It takes that long to do all the lab work and get the results back. So we need to continue to uh, pray for him and uh, his recovery, and getting back, being able to get back, get his strength back, and back to studies and everything else. So, just keep keep at it. Don't don't quit now. Okay, let's have a few, words, a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your mercy and your compassion for the depth and breadth and height of your love and your grace for us, that it is unmerited and undeserved, but it is based upon the completed, finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, we pray now that as we uh, study your word, that you would help us to understand these things and understand all the ways in which you have graciously provided uh, ways for us to face and handle the adversities of life. Father, we continue to pray for Dan and for his recovery. Pray that he will uh, not have any more problems as a result of this, but they would have gotten all the, all the tumor out, no spread of cancer, and that he would uh, quickly return to his studies and uh, back, back on task. Now, Father, we pray for us that as we listen to your word study it this evening, that we would be challenged, that we would be responsive, positive to what you have for each of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, and we're down to verse 10. James chapter 5, verse 10. So last week I saw, for I don't know, the umpteenth time, one of my favorite movies. It's called A League of Their Own. And it's the story of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, which came into effect uh, during World War II when they thought all the all the uh, men players, professional baseball players, would be off at the war that they decided they, the team owners wanted to have some kind of way to make money in professional baseball, so they decided they'd have a women's league. And it's a movie directed by Pe- uh, Penny Marshall, and Tom Hanks is in it, and Gina Davis. It's a great movie, but there's one particular scene towards the end of the movie when one of the players is um, ready to quit. Her husband's come back from the war, and she's the star player, and she's ready to quit and go home. 
have children and go back to family life. And there's some other dynamics going on in the plot, and Tom Hanks comes to her and says, why are you quitting? She says, well, it just got too hard. And he looks at her, it's one of the great lines in, in movie history. Hard. Hard. It's supposed to be hard. If it weren't hard, everyone would do it. It's the hard that makes it great. And you see, that's the principle of endurance that we're studying here in James chapter 5. That's the issue in the Christian life. It's, it's, in fact, the Christian life really isn't hard. It's impossible. And it can only be carried out under the power and the ministry, the filling of God, the Holy Spirit. And that's the basis for endurance. It is difficult to live the Christian life. We are constantly being tested, constantly being challenged. Our faith is constantly being challenged. And it is up to us to determine, up to our volition, to determine whether or not we are ready to meet that challenge. The problem is there are many believers who are failures in the Christian life and they are going to be losers at the judgment seat of Christ because they have not been willing to face that challenge to endure. And that is the theme of James in this epistle, is endurance, perseverance. It is the Greek word hupomone, which means to stay in there, hang in there under pressure. Hupo meaning under, uh, meno, from the, the verb form meno meaning to remain under, to stay in the midst of that outside pressure of adversity by applying doctrine consistently so that you can avoid converting that outside pressure of adversity into stress in the soul. And as James comes to his conclusion, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 5, he returns to this theme of patience and endurance. Verse 7 he says, Be patient. Behold, the farmer waits patiently for the produce of the soil, Verse 8, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts. Verse 10, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience. Patience comes from the Greek word makrothemeo, which means to, it's like long on anger. It's holding on, it's being long-tempered, not being short-tempered, but being able to wait. And the context here, as we have seen, has to do with understanding the dynamics of God's plan. Just as the farmer understands the dynamics of growth in the, <clears throat> in the harvest with his crop, whatever it might be, he understands the growth time. So the believer understands that there is time involved. There is a plan. He's oriented to the plan of God, and he understands what God is doing in his life. Now, in terms of the overall plan of God in, in human history, we have the dispensations. We live here in the church age between the cross and the church age really began on the day of Pentecost, approximately 33 A.D., and ends with the rapture of the church, which is imminent. That's the doctrine that we have studied. It comes from the Greek word ingus, which is uh, used in verse 8, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand, is imminent. It can happen at any moment. We don't know when it is, so we are encouraged to be ready because the Lord is standing at the door. It can happen at any particular moment, so therefore we need to do everything 
to be ready, to be prepared for the Lord's coming. So we have to be oriented to the plan of God. Now, as we have seen in our analysis of James and the whole issue of adversity and testing and the outside pressure of adversity and avoiding the inside pressure of stress in the soul, we've seen that God has provided a system of problem-solving. A system of problem-solving that is extrapolated from all the, the, the various scriptures in the Word of God. And as I have developed this, we have seen that there are basic problem-solving devices or stress busters. There is one adolescent stress buster, and then there are advanced or adult stress busters. Now, this is looking at the whole process statically, and we'll look at it in a minute in a little more dynamic way, because you don't learn things one one stress buster at a time. You do not learn one problem-solving device, master it, and then move on to the next one. In essence, these ten stress busters really map out, provide a blueprint for understanding the, the growth of the spiritual life from infancy to adulthood. In spiritual childhood, here we have this foundation, spiritual childhood, there are five stress busters. The first is confession, 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sins, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins. To God the Father, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the issue, because the underlying problem of all stress is sin. The reason there is suffering, adversity, death, despair, discouragement, heartache in, in human history all goes back to Adam's sinful choice in the garden. So that is the root cause, because God solved the greatest problem we will ever face, which is sin. We know that God can solve any other problem that we face in life. So whenever we have tried to solve problems on our own, that's the sin nature control of the soul. We've converted the outside pressure of adversity into stress in the soul. If we are going to get rid of that stress, if we're going to get back on track into God's plan, there has to be a means of recovery. That's confession. With confession, we get a recovery of the spiritual life and restoration of the filling of the Holy Spirit and fellowship with the Lord so that we can now walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 commands that we be filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who is the instrumental means that God has provided the believer so that we can live the spiritual life of the church age. In the Old Testament, they did not have the Holy Spirit. Part of what God is teaching in a historical framework is that man on his own, apart from the enabling of God, is incapable of living and experiencing all that God has for us. And under the Old Testament economy, the basic dynamic was simply the faith rest drill, They had a measure of joy, a measure of happiness, a measure of blessing, but it was nothing like what can be experienced by the church-age believer. The least church-age believer is greater than the greatest of any Old Testament saint, and that is because of all of the assets we have and the empowering that we have through God the Holy Spirit. So the filling of the Holy Spirit is the second stress buster, and then the next three are your critical features that are developed 
almost simultaneously as you grow and advance spiritually. First, there is the faith rest drill. Faith rest drill has several factors as we've studied. It's mixing our faith with the promises of God, which means you have to know something about the promises of God so that you can have an object for your faith. It is also using doctrinal rationale such as God is omnipotent. That means that God is greater than any problem I'll ever face. God is omniscient. He knew every problem I will ever face. Therefore, God has made a provision for every problem I will ever face. That's a doctrinal rationale. It is just thinking through doctrines in a logical way, thinking about the essence of God and applying his various attributes to the, to the situation at hand. That, of course, means that you have to know something about the essence of God. If you do not take the time to study the Word and be inculcated with Bible doctrine, then you won't know that, and all you're left with is just some sort of nebulous, uh, nebulous, wishy-washy hope that may or may not have something to do with Bible doctrine. Faith rest drill, this is really the glue. It's, it's mixing faith with the, with the um, promises of God. It's using doctrinal rationales. And then it is reaching doctrinal conclusions. Paul does this in Romans 8 where he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, he's reached a doctrinal conclusion and applies that to his problem. Then we have grace orientation. Grace orientation involves a number of factors. You have... Humility, both enforced and genuine. Enforced humility is authority orientation. We have uh, relaxed mental attitude. You have um, a mastery of the details of life. These are all part of grace orientation, fundamentally understanding that God does everything for us. Everything in his plan is dependent upon who he is and what Christ did on the cross. It's not dependent on who we are, on our ability, on our attractiveness, on our personality, on our own, uh, uh, or any other human factor. So that grace orientation means that we can completely relax in life and trust God to do everything because he has promised to. Then the fifth basic problem-solving device is doctrinal orientation, where we learn something about the purposes and the plan of God. We learn something about his procedures so that we can orient our thinking and align our thinking to God's plan, God's policies, God's procedures. That is doctrinal orientation. This is how we orient to reality. Bible doctrine tells us what reality is so that we can have objectivity when we face trials. Whenever you get involved in some serious adversity, the first thing we tend to do is to get subjective. We think about how it hurts. We think about how it affects us. And we lose objectivity. And the only way to recover that is through doctrinal orientation. Grace orientation is orientation to, to life, our orientation to God, and doctrinal orientation is orientation to reality. As you master these various basic problem-solving devices, that provides the foundation for all spiritual life afterwards. These are also called spiritual skills because we have to practice them day in and day out every time we have a decision to make. Every time there's, a, in, there's any situation that engages our volition, we have to decide whether we're going to operate on human viewpoint or divine viewpoint. Now, the hinge or transition uh, stress buster is the one that we're focusing on this evening, and that is our personal sense of an eternal destiny. 
And if you want a basic definition of a personal sense of eternal destiny, it is that we are living today in light of eternity. We're living today in light of eternity. We're going to make decisions today on the basis of their eternal ramifications. A personal sense of eternal destiny. That presupp- to have that, it presupposes that you've developed some basic skills in the faith rest drill, that you have an understanding of grace, orientation, that there is teachability, that there is humility, that there is a mastery of the details of life, and that you understand some basic dynamics of the plan and purposes of God. Once you get that in place, then you begin to think more in terms of God's overall plan. You can begin with the end in mind, because once you understand the plan and the purposes of God, you know where things are going. This is the chart that we've developed. We have salvation, which is when we enter into God's plan for the spiritual life. Then we have the dynamics of the spiritual life. And the end result is that at death or the rapture, whichever comes first, we will be absent from the body face to face with the Lord and we will come to the judgment seat of Christ. This is when we are evaluated on the basis of how we have lived our life in relation to application of doctrine. This is not a time to point out all of our failures, but a time to point out our successes. Sadly, there are those who will appear at the judgment seat of Christ who will have no successes, so they will enter into heaven as losers. They will suffer loss, the Scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. They will suffer loss. They will enter into heaven yet as through fire. So, They lose rewards, and there will be temporary shame in the judgment seat of Christ. However, believers who have reached a stage of understanding their personal sense of eternal destiny, having that impact their decision-making, they will have advanced to maturity. They will have rewards and inheritance in heaven. This is why James refers to this theme of judgment, which he mentions in verse 8, "...the Lord is at hand." And verse 9, judgment is mentioned twice, ending with the phrase, the judge is standing right at the door, to challenge us with the fact that there is accountability, there is evaluation for every decision of spiritual life. Not to determine whether or not we enter into heaven, but to determine where we are in heaven, our place in heaven, our role, our responsibility, and whether or not we uh, are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And we'll come back and look at that a little more in a little more detail before the night is over. So it is with this overall plan that we can see the blueprint. When you can understand this plan and you see how this chart works and you've got it so ingrained in your consciousness that every time you make a decision you think about this blueprint, this flow chart and where you are in relation to it That's when you're beginning to operate in terms of a personal sense of your eternal destiny. You're living today in light of eternity. This is why personal sense of eternal destiny is that transition zone. Because it is at this point that you, you quit thinking just in terms of temporal issues and how things are going to affect you today or tomorrow, or what you're going to do today or tomorrow, but you develop an eternal perspective on life, realizing that our temporal existence is nothing more than a drop in the ocean. It is, when it's compared to eternity, eternity is vast and unending, 
and we just have a very short time. Our life is like a vapor, the Scripture says. It's just, it's just barely noticeable in the overall expanse of eternity. And yet the decisions that we make today, tomorrow, day in and day out, those are the decisions that will determine the quality of our existence throughout uh, eternity in heaven and our capacity to enjoy uh, our, our relationship with the Lord in eternity. So we move from childhood to adolescence and then into spiritual adulthood. And the first three of these four are all related. I call them the love triplex. And it has to do with personal love for God the Father. That is our motivator at this time. Once we move past personal sense of our eternal destiny, we have learned a certain amount about God and we begin to fall more and more in love with the Lord, not because we have some emotional experience, not because we sing a lot of wonderful hymns like what a friend we have in Jesus and we get the, a rosy glow and just feel all warm and fuzzy all over, but because we come to understand all that he has done for us. And again and again I'm impressed as we go through John, and we'll see it even more in the next couple of chapters on Sunday morning, that love in the Scriptures is not measured by some internal subjective criterion, but is measured by an objective external criterion called obedience. So that, <clears throat> that gives us a, a clear measuring rod to determine our love for the Lord. It is not based on how we feel. It's not based on some experience or second blessing or whatever it might be called but it's based on our assimilation of Bible doctrine and consistent application of it. So there's personal love for God, then there is impersonal or unconditional love for all mankind. Impersonal emphasizes the fact that we do not need to have a personal relationship with another believer. We do not have to know them. Whenever somebody makes a statement, I love you, I emphasizes the subject, the one who is loving. You emphasizes the object of that love. Now, what happens often when somebody says, I love you, what they are saying is there's something that I find personally attractive, personally uh, engaging about the object of my love. I like their personality. I like what they say about me. I like the things I do with them or they do with me. And I love you because of who and what you are. That's putting all the emphasis on the object of love and is based on a personal relationship. But an impersonal love means that you don't know that person, yet you are going to love them based on who God is and what Christ did on the cross, and so you are going to treat them with honor, with respect, with value, and you are going to do everything you can in terms of what the Bible says is right and correct for that person. True love does what is best for the object of that love, and that means you to understand a value such as best means you have to have a value system in your soul based on doctrine in order to be able to understand what is truly best for that person. What is best for somebody may not be what they think is best for them. It may not be what many people think is best for them. It may not be what, what makes people feel good, but it is defined in the Word of God as that which is best. Unconditional means it is not based on the responsiveness of the object of that love, whether or not they accept that 
accept what you do, how they respond, or any other factor on their part. It is based exclusively on the objectivity of God's Word. So that way, whenever we get involved in any problem related to people, we can sail through it with contentment and tranquility because our love for them is not based on anything having to do with them. And then the third factor in that uh, love triplex is occupation with Christ. And once we have all that in place, then we begin to maximize our inner happiness when Jesus said, my joy I give to you, that is the joy that we experience that is, uh, involves peace, inner tranquility, contentment, and goes beyond all comprehension and is a product not of our own natural ability, but is, according to Galatians 5, 22 and 23, a production of God the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the framework. We have to understand that, and one reason I'm tying all this together is that we are on the edge of completing our study of James. I want to go over this one or two more times to make sure it's ingrained deeply in our souls so that we don't forget it when we move on to a new study. Now, James comes in verse 10 to providing a couple of examples to emphasize this whole aspect of a personal sense of an eternal destiny. Verse 10, he says, starts off in the English, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, that's not exactly a correct translation. It, it conveys the basic sense of the Greek, but it's a poor translation in English. Literally, what we have in the introduction of this, of, uh, this verse in the Greek is, you, is a mandate, a command. You all, it's in the plural, so it must be southern, y'all receive an example. It is the present active imperative, second person plural, of the Greek verb lombano. Lombano means to, to receive. Looks like this in the Greek. Lombano, L-A-M-B-A-N-O. Means to take, to receive. An example, and the word there for example is the Greek word hupa degma. H, this is a rough breathing mark, so it's always transliterated in H. H-U-P-O, which is a preposition, prepositional suffix, hupadegma, D-E-I-G-M-A. And it means an example, a type, um, something to uh, provide a prototype for. It's used positively in John 13:15 when Jesus says to the disciples... After the foot washing, which is a, teaches forgiveness, Jesus says, For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. That's emphasizing forgiveness, which is a function of impersonal, unconditional love for all mankind. Negatively, it's used in reference to the Exodus generation and their disobedience and carnality. In Hebrews 4.11, where we read, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. So the emphasis in this word is that throughout the Scriptures, God has provided 
objective revelation of people's lives, both their failures and their successes, in order to give us models or patterns of behavior to learn by, to see how they applied doctrine and were successful, or how they failed to apply doctrine and were unsuccessful. So Hupadegma emphasizes this example as or receive an example. In other words, follow the example. It's an idiomatic phrase. Follow the example. It's a command, not simply a statement as it's translated in the English. Follow the example, brethren, of what? Of suffering and patience. Now, the word here for suffering is a very interesting word. It is not the normal word for suffering or for adversity. It is kakapatheia. And this is one of those great words. It's a compound word, but its meaning has very little to do with the, the, the meaning of its part, parts. And one of the great errors in Greek studies is that you always find somebody who comes along and they find a word like this and they try to break it down etymologically and then they say, well, that's what the word means. It's got two parts and one part means this and one part means that. Combine them together and that's the meaning of the word. That, that mistake's always made in 1 John 1.9 with homo legeo. Homo legeo is a compound word from homo meaning the same. Legeo, a word for speaking, to speak or to say the same thing. And somebody will come along and say, see, confession means to say the same thing about something that God says about it. That's not what confession means at all. You combine the two words and usage determines how a word is mean, mean, what a word means. And homo legeo means to admit or acknowledge true guilt, not emotional guilt, but true guilt that you did something wrong. It doesn't have an uh, emotional connotation or anything else. Kakapathea is a combination of the word for evil and a word for emotion. It doesn't have anything to do with evil emotion. It has to do with suffering, going through difficult times, and it has undertones of the hardship and the suffering that the person goes through in times of the outside pressure of adversity. See, we all go through this. When you go through outside pressure of adversity, there's always an emotional reaction. Always. You can't avoid it. If I come up and suddenly reach out and punch you in the nose, there's going to be an emotional reaction as well as a physical reaction. And there's going to be pain. It's automatic. Whenever we go through adversity, as soon as we hit it, there's instantly this emotional reaction. The issue is not that you have a certain emotional reaction or not and that that's wrong or right. It's automatic. The issue is what are you going to do with it? That's where volition comes to play. Whenever we hit adversity, sometimes there's instant discouragement, sometimes there's instant anger, uh, resentment, bitterness towards God, whatever it may be. But the issue is what are you going to do with that? Are you going to let that stay there and continue in bitterness, anger? Are you going to instantly confess, move on, orient your thinking to the Lord, and not get involved in emotional sense? So what James is saying here, that there is an example, in the many examples in the Old Testament, of suffering and patience. And the word for patience, once again, is the familiar word we studied in the last several weeks, makrothemeia. But the construction is interesting. You have an article noun construction like this. You have an article, noun, 
Then you have the conjunction chi, K-A-I, and then you have article noun. What this indicates is that there is a connection between the two nouns. This is a grammatical construction called the hendiatis, which indicates that the two nouns are closely linked together. It's suffering and patience is, would be one way of translating it, but instead of saying suffering and patience, the author just says suffering and patience, links them together uh, grammatically. So it, as a, an example of suffering and patience, applying patience in times of adversity, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So here he's going to cast us back on the Old Testament prophets to see how they handled the outside pressure of adversity. Now, they clearly went through adversity. Jesus refers to this in Matthew 23, 29, and 30, where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we have n- would not have been partners with them in, the, in shedding the blood of the prophets. Consequently, Jesus went on to say, You bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. That is a very hard saying. What Jesus is saying is, you come along and in your hypocrisy, what you say is, we wouldn't have done it that way. We would not have murdered. We would not have assassinated. We would not have martyred the prophets. We would have listened to them. We would have been responsive to God. We're the Pharisees. We do everything right. And Jesus said, if you had been living in those days, you would have been just as arrogant and just as hostile to the Word of God as the people who were alive at that time, and you would have been partners. And for that reason, you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. So the prophets went through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, Jonah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, all the prophets went through tremendous adversity and rejection. And I don't think any of us have ever experienced the kind of rejection on a scale as someone like Jeremiah or Ezekiel during a, a generation that was going out under the uh, fifth cycle of discipline. Daniel 9.6, Daniel refers to this in his prayer of national repentance for the nation just before the end of the 70 years of captivity. He says to God, Moreover, we have not listened to thy servants, the prophets, who spoke in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. They continuously went through rejection. Now, I took some time today. I, was, I wish I had time to develop this, but we would spend the rest of the year doing so. I just want to give you a little perspective of how a personal sense of eternal destiny impacted the Old Testament believers. Flip back about five or six pages to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 And I want to point out how a personal sense of eternal destiny changed and motivated the life of Old Testament saints. Hebrews chapter 11. We'll just sort of skip skip down through various passages, but as we do this, it should give you a uh, just sort of a grid or framework for understanding how a personal sense of eternal destiny operates. Verse 1. Now, faith 
is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, the word translated hoped for is a participial form of elpizo. Elpizo is a Greek word. It doesn't mean hope like we normally use it in English. We talk about hope and we say, well, I really hope it's a nice weekend this weekend. I need to work in the yard. I don't want it to rain or be too cold. I need to go out and do something. So I hope it's a nice weekend. We don't know whether it will or be. We're just expressing sort of a confident, really an optimistic wish. We have no certainty whatsoever, no conviction, although it may be predicted in the five-day forecast that Saturday and Sunday are going to be in the mid-60s and we're going to have a nice spring weekend with the batting record of the meteorologist so far this winter. It'll probably rain, snow, sleet, or hail, or all of the above. That's not the concept of hope in the Scripture. Elpizo means confident expectation. There is a certainty of what will transpire. See, that's why I mean a personal sense of eternal destiny. There is a certainty that the judge is standing at the door. There is a certainty that the rapture will occur, and immediately following the rapture, there will be the judgment seat of Christ, and I will be evaluated, and that could happen tonight on the way home. Am I living today in light of the fact that tomorrow I could be standing before the judgment seat of Christ? So faith is the assurance of things confidently expected. The conviction of things not seen. See, it's yet future. It's not seen yet, but we know it will be. Now the term faith here, faith is used, as we've said before, in different senses. One sense is of the act of trusting. So the noun has has a sense of just relating to trusting God. It's also used in sort of an objective way of that which is trusted, that which is believed, which would be a body of doctrine. Sometimes it has a, a plenary sense, a full sense, where it refers not only to the act of trusting, but what is trusted. And I think that is the way that faith is used throughout this chapter. It refers not only to the fact that these men were actively trusting God, but their trust had gone beyond that basic level of the faith rest drill to where it has a it's energized by their conviction of what is in the future that is so certain it's considered a present reality. In the in the Greek sometimes they talk about grammatically both in Greek and Hebrew of a prophetic present tense. What that means is the word, the the event that is described by a present tense verb is yet future, but it is viewed as so certain that it is expressed as a present reality. And that's the sense of the personal sense of our eternal destiny, that we have such a conviction that the reality of the judgment seat of Christ is so overwhelming and real and present to us that it is dominating every decision in the present time. So this is the the introduction to Hebrews 11, that these are going to be examples. All of these Old Testament saints that are portrayed here in Hebrews 11 are examples of those who had such a level of confidence of what would happen that it revolutionized their present tense decision-making. Verse 2, For by it the men of old gained approval. Now that again is a translation, they did not gain approval. The concept of approval 
would be the Greek verb dokimazo, uh, related to the noun dokimion, which would be the, the same sense that you have in James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brethren, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Their testing is dokimion. It has to do testing for approval. This says the, the Greek word here is martyreo, which means a testimony. For by it the men of old had a testimony. See, it is that personal sense of eternal destiny that so impacts our present tense decision making that it creates a life that is a testimony to the angels in heaven in the angelic conflict and to man on earth. This is when we really begin to live the spiritual life and reap the benefits of it. When we're operating as a child learning those basic infant problem-solving devices, we're not experiencing much except the rigors of learning. Just like any young child or anybody new in a job or profession, you don't really experience the benefits of it until you've got maturity and a skill level in that profession, in that job, in life, whatever it may be. It is by faith, it is by doctrine, that the men of old had a testimony. Now let's skip down a couple of verses and pick up the next major thought, which is expressed in verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You see, there are two doctrines there that are the object of the verb believe. One, that God exists, and that involves not only his existence, but also his attributes. You have to not only know that he is, but what he is, in order to know that he is. So it involves the essence of God, an advanced understanding of theology proper, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, the whole concept of rewards in Scripture entails the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10 and 1 Corinthians 3. Um, 10 through through uh, 13. So this is that personal sense of eternal destiny again. It is emphasizing the fact that God rewards those who seek Him. It is not simply talking about the reward of salvation. It is talking about something that goes beyond salvation. Then we come to verse 7. Verse 7 we see the one, a clear example of how personal sense of eternal destiny helped Noah solve or deal with one of the greatest or the greatest meteorological disaster in all of human history. By faith, by trusting God and understanding specific doctrines in relationship to God, Noah being warned by God about what? Things not yet seen. What is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hope for and the conviction of things not seen. So Noah had never seen rain, Noah had never seen a flood, but Noah had not seen this destiny. Yet, he understood that this was a temporal destiny and that God had provided specific solutions to that and he applied that in terms of faith rest drill, which meant actively believing the promise of God. So he went out and he built an enormous ark. In spite of all the ridicule, that he went through. Nobody had seen it rain or seen a flood. Nobody knew why he was doing something of that nature. So Noah faces a problem, and because he understands that God has a plan and purpose in history, and he understands where history is going, he is going to make present tense decisions in light of future events. 
That is how a personal sense of eternal destiny solves problems. So he says because he, he was warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence he prepared an ark for the deliverance. It's not salvation in terms of, of uh, saving going to heaven, but temporal deliverance from the judgment of the flood. Prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became, what, an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now, this brings in the important concept of inheritance, which we've studied before. I don't want to take the time to go through a detailed study of inheritance, but we have seen that inheritance is not the same as salvation. Inheritance is not the same as entering into heaven. It is not talking about the fact that by his faith Noah is going to end up in heaven. It's talking about the fact that by trusting God in a particular way, at a particular time, in relation to a particular problem, Noah gains an eternal position as an heir of righteousness, which is according to or according to the norm or standard of the doctrine in his soul. So there will be a reward rewards for Noah, rewards for Old Testament saints. I don't know when this will be. The scriptures are not clear as to when Old Testament saints receive their evaluation judgment. We know that New Testament saints are evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. Old Testament saints are not resurrected till the end of the tribulation. There is a the only other judgment the scriptures speak of is the great white throne judgment, but that's for unbelievers alone. So when Old Testament saints are evaluated, when millennial saints are evaluated, we don't know. The scriptures do not tell us. They, they, we are certain there must be, from passages like this, some level of, of evaluation, judgment for them, but the Scriptures do not specify when that will be. That's the example of Noah. Then we have the example of Abraham in verse 8. By faith, by means of his trusting God in relation to specific doctrines, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. Now, Abraham... Abram, as he was called in Genesis 12.1, was already a believer. He was already a believer. His eternal destiny was already determined to be heaven. But that's not what this is talking about. Inheritance. His possession in the land which was promised to him in the Abrahamic covenant. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, verse 9, by faith, that is by trusting in specific doctrines revealed to him. He lived as an alien in the land of promise. So he didn't have a permanent home. He lived in a tent. He lived in a foreign land. He lived, lived in the midst of strangers and people who didn't worship the same gods he did, who didn't understand reality as he did. He was constantly at odds with those surrounding him, at odds with their culture. He, he lived in tents with his son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, and they were also fellow heirs of that same promise, but they lived in tents. That means they never possessed the inheritance. Remember when we studied inheritance, inheritance means a possession, and it is not something that is guaranteed to every believer. I'm going to skip through a couple of um, things here, maybe not.
Okay, Romans 8, 16 and 17 states, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. That's salvation. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. This brings in the whole concept of inheritance for the believer's life. And inheritance and understanding inheritance is crucial to, to developing a personal sense of your eternal destiny. Now, the way this is punctuated in the English, it really indicates a works-based salvation. Remember, there was no punctuation in the original Greek text. No commas, no periods. In the uncial text, there's not even a space between words. They're all capital letters, and they just run together, and there's no space between words at all. You can figure it out if you know the language. But yet, when translating it into English, there are certain interpretive decisions that have to be made. Now, notice it says, If children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, notice that when you look at this, this section right here, it, uh, heirs of God and fellow heirs, there's no comma here. So it looks like heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ are synonymous concepts. Let's do a little exercise to show that there is a difference. Look at this phrase. How would you punctuate this particular sentence? A woman without her man is nothing. Now, most of you ladies have probably punctuated it this way. A woman, colon. Without her, man is nothing. Now, most of you guys probably punctuated it like this. A woman without her man is nothing. You see, it's the same words, but the way you punctuate the sentence completely changes the meaning of the sentence. So when we look at Romans 8, 16, and 17, we have a case of a misplaced comma. It should read, and if children, comma, heirs also, heirs of God, comma, and joint heirs with Christ, no comma, because joint heirship with Christ is, deter- is dependent upon the condition if we suffer with Him. See, if being an heir of God and fellow heir with Christ are the same thing, then that's what we get at salvation. And that would be dependent on suffering with Him. So the way it's punctuated in the New American Standard, in being an heir of God or joint heir with Christ is, determined, is dependent upon suffering with Him. That's a works concept for salvation. But if you repunctuate it, heirs also, heirs of God, comma, and fellow heirs with Christ, making two categories of inheritance. Heirs of God is what every believer has in common. Joint heirship with Christ is dependent upon suffering with Him, that is, advancing to spiritual maturity. Then there, is, there are two categories of inheritance. And that's what the Scripture is indicating. There is that which comes to every believer at the point of salvation, and then there is that inheritance which belongs to believers as a result of their obedience and advance to spiritual maturity. And the same thing is true in in the Old Testament. So Abraham 
Abraham is said to receive an inheritance. Jacob, Isaac and Jacob received that inheritance, but they never actuated that, that inheritance. It was still something in the future. Verse 10, For he was looking for the city which has foundations. They knew they were confident that God would provide it, that confident expectation. It was future. They never realized it on earth. They will realize it eventually. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will live in the promised land in the sit in, in um, the millennial kingdom when they are resurrected, and they will be joint heirs of that same promise. But because they anticipated the fulfillment of the promise, though they never realized it during their life, it impacted the decisions that they made during life. The same can be said of Sarah. And again, it's, it's indicated of Abraham. We'll skip down to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, that is, by means of trusting in specific doctrines, Abraham, when he was tested outside pressure of adversity, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, And Isaac, your descendants shall be called. Verse 19, He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. See, he anticipated the future. And on the basis of future reality, confident expectation in what the future would be, he made present tense decisions. So because he knew God had promised that his, he would have descendants through Isaac, he knew that even if he sacrificed Isaac, God would raise him from the dead. So that he was able to face that adversity with a relaxed mental attitude and he would have carried it out if God had not prevented him. Turn the page. Let's skip down just for sake of time. Skip down to verse 32. Verse 32. The writer says, What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. Now there's an interesting list of Old Testament heroes. They're heroes, they're faith heroes, because they're included in this chapter. As we will see when we get to a point where we study the book of Judges, most of these men were failures. Samuel was not, but Gideon was a massive failure. Barak caved into uh, the leadership of women instead of an announcing his own authority. Samson was an unmitigated failure. Jephthah sacrificed his daughters a burnt offering. David, of course, failed miserably and went through a lot of suffering. All of these guys failed miserably, and the tremendous encouragement from this passage is that these men that God sets forth for us as examples of trusting Him were also tremendous failures. But at some critical point in their life, they understood their eternal destiny. They had a confident expectation of the future, and they made a present tense decision on the basis of future reality, and it transformed the history of Israel. And for that glimmer of maturity and trust, God puts them in a chapter praising their faith and their maturity. Yet we know they were complete failures, so that lets us know that God is not a perfectionist and does not expect us to be perfect. He does expect us, though, to advance in maturity and to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. Now, he lists all these prophets, includes them all there in the last phrase, in the prophets, who by faith, that is, by means of trusting in doctrines revealed and understood, 
conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, of course that was Daniel, quenched the power of fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, escaped the edge of the sword, from weaknesses were made strong, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. So this is what James is referring to, that we are to look at the example of the Old Testament prophets and their example of suffering and patience in the midst of suffering. And then in verse 11, back in James chapter 5, James says, Behold, we count those blessed who endure. Now he moves to the next level. Not only were they patient, but they endured. See, he's going to use the example of Job, who wasn't patient. Finally, he lost patience with God, and he just said, God, why are you taking me through all this? And threw a little temper tantrum and demanded that God come and explain everything to him. So James shifts his terminology from patience to endurance, because Job did endure. He hung in there. He did not blaspheme God. He did not give up. He did not throw away his faith. He didn't say, well, doctrine doesn't work, no matter how miserable I am. He just wanted an answer. And incidentally, God never gave him an answer. God simply focused Job's attention back on his character. So James says, Behold, we count those blessed. And Job was indeed blessed. We know from Job 42.12 that at the end of his life, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels. In other words, God restored everything to him in abundance and beyond what he had to begin with. Now, that doesn't mean that if we go through suffering in this life and adversity and we lose a lot, that God's going to restore it in this life. But we do know that that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. And the Greek terminology there for full of compassion indicates that God has an excess of compassion and mercy based upon His grace. We can never outdo the grace and the compassion and the mercy of God. We can never use it up. It is in fact, infinite. So what, what James is telling us is that just as there was restoration and recompense in the life of Job, so that whether in time or in eternity, the believer who endures in the midst of suffering can expect to be, receive full compensation for whatever loss, whatever adversity we uh, encounter during life. It may not be now, but if we, in, if we endure and we continue to advance to maturity, even though we may lose everything in this life, the rewards that we have at the judgment seat of Christ will make up for that a thousandfold. So the basis, once again, is for endurance is the character and the grace of God. So you have to have grace orientation, you have to have doctrinal orientation, if you are going to reach a personal sense of eternal destiny so that we can endure. And then in verse 12, which just kind of hangs in there as almost a parenthetical thought, James says, but above all, my brethren, and here he uses an interesting Greek construction. It doesn't mean highest priority. It merely is a rhetorical device to emphasize a shift in thought. He says, above all, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Once again, he is coming back to the idea of judgment. And what James means in verse 12 is simply this. Don't get involved in sins of the tongue. How easy it is when people come under judgment, when people come under adversity, is to say they'll do this, they'll do that, try to bargain with God, make swear an oath, 
Uh, Paul swore an oath. In the Old Testament, oath is binding on, on a person. It's, it's an extremely serious, serious matter. So much so that after Paul swore an oath to go to Jerusalem, no matter what anybody said, despite the warnings of the Holy Spirit that he would go through divine discipline, he stuck with his oath. They took these things seriously. So much so that Jesus said in Matthew 5:34 and 35, But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Make no oath at all. Don't get involved in the sin of the tongue. Don't get involved in arrogance. Don't try to uh, bribe God. And, of course, we get a negative example of this in Peter. In Matthew 26, 74, after he is accused of being a Galilean by those who are waiting for the Lord to be crucified, we see Peter's response to that adversity. He said, the scripture says, Then he began to curse and to swear. I don't know the man. And immediately the cock crowed. So there you have an example of outside adversity being responded to by swearing an oath. And Peter got himself in serious trouble. So James says, above all, finally, it's almost a statement of finally, as I close out this concept of judgment, don't get involved in sins of the tongue, which of course has been a continuous problem with this congregation, and we've studied it time and again. Usually it involved uh, slander, gossip, maligning, but here it involves don't swear, don't get, let your tongue get carried away before you think about it and get caught up in something that uh, you don't really mean that you won't really carry out, don't get caught up in some kind of adversity, uh, some kind of hypocrisy, but just let your yes be yes, your no, no, and that you may not fall under judgment. In other words, that you may not suffer loss at the judgment seat of Christ. It's the same concept. That brings us now to one of my favorite passages, because it's one of those problem passages that everybody stumbles over, verses 13 through 18 which has to do with, uh, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders and let them pray over him and anoint him with oil. And we will find out what that really means next time. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for your grace, for your mercy, that you are full of compassion and mercy, that we can never outdo your grace, that it is far above and beyond and extends further than we can ever, ever imagine that your grace has provided the ultimate solution for us at the cross, that, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for every single sin that we'll ever face, and that he made a provision for all of the phenomenal spiritual assets we have in this church age, including the filling of the Holy Spirit and all of the problem-solving devices so that we can face any adversity, any difficulty, any prosperity without converting it into the inside pressure of stress in the soul. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have learned, that we may, may focus on that city that is yet in the future, our future rule and reign with Jesus Christ, that, that the judgment seat of Christ, the reality of our future evaluation, would impact the decisions we make today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.